This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll reflect on sensational Scotland's win over Spain and just what it means for Steve Clark, their manager. We'll also reflect on Rodri's comments that they're rubbish. Wales make a solid start to qualifying as well as life after Gareth Bell goes as smoothly as possible. Also, there's big news at Spurs as Fabio Paratici, their director of football, is banned worldwide. But what does that mean for their plans moving forward? And we'll look ahead to some big games coming up in the Premier League this season as Roy Hodgson returns to Crystal Palace and Manchester City take on Liverpool. This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast with myself, Hugh Wisencroft, Gregor Robertson, Tom Roddy in the studio with me, Jonathan Northcroft from his palatial palace to discuss, let's be honest, the result of what? The last couple of decades, last few decades for Scotland, first of all, of course, because, well, firstly, just a massive step in terms of wanting to qualify for the European Championships. Big win over group favourite Spain, Fantastic atmosphere, fantastic result. Their first competitive victory over Spain for 39 years. They are now top of Group A after the first two matches. The victory over Cyprus and then the win over Spain, humbling them. They are now five points above Norway in the group, three points above Spain. It is pretty much the perfect start to qualification. Jonathan Northcroft, how pleased were you with this victory and what was key to it? I was just reveling in your introduction there, Hugh. I nearly <laughs> poured myself another dram while you were <laughs> Spain. Um, how pleased was that? I'm still smiling, to be honest. Um, and it was a it was an absolutely brilliant result. But the best thing about it almost was it wasn't entirely a surprise, and that's a real testament to to where we are now under Steve Clark. It's only four years ago we were losing to Kazakhstan that major tournaments just seemed like, you know, so far away. And under Steve, we've, 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 we've now got a, a proper football team again that you can rely on to perform. And the reason I thought we had a, a really decent chance of winning was the, the record, albeit there was that Ukraine loss that, that under different circumstances that cost us World Cup qualification. But if you take that aside, Scotland have become a team that wins the games that they should. Got to be honest, that Spanish side is about as poor as a Spain as I've seen. And looking at them on paper before the game, I thought we we can we can beat these because we've got a, we've got a good team, we've got good players, and we're playing at Hamden. But the way it was executed was was fantastic. Your Scott McTominay takes the honours. I don't know how he's or where it's come from, but that ability to arrive in the box and and, and score goals as as it's, it's just it's just clicked with him um, following on from his performance against Cyprus. Two brilliant goals, but there were great performances across the pitch. Andy Robertson was as, as good as I've seen him. Kieran Tierney for the second goal. I thought the centre-halves, particularly Ryan Porteous, were, were really good. Callum McGregor, you can always rely on him. And in goal, Angus Gunn looked like he'd been playing international football for a long time. It was just a brilliant night. It was just an absolutely brilliant night, made all the better by by Rodri's tears afterwards. <laughs> we'll come to those, we'll come to those. And the pressure on the Spain squad and their manager, Luis De La Fuente, as well. Already people questioning how he got the job as manager. So in terms of qualification, you know, a managerial change at Spain, uproar in their media, that's absolutely the perfect recipe for Scotland topping this group, coupled, of course, with their own positive performances. Um, great from Steve Clark. 
as well, just generally, uh, in terms of the home record in particular with Scotland and the ability to win matches there um, at Hampden Park has been important. Yeah, I think it's two two defeats in 18 competitive, competitive games. And even actually there's... Uh, Michael Grant's piece, there was a good juxtaposition between his first game was against Cyprus and there were 30, 31,000 people there four years ago and it was a sellout for this against the same opposition, you know, and, and it's a sellout for the rest of the year. So, like, that's a big change. That's mm. a big change in the atmosphere and the, the whole environment and the whole, like, expectation levels and enjoyment will want to be there want to go yeah. and watch your nation play and this is why you see the kind of you see the commitment you know that we're gonna you know Spain we're gonna have more passes and dominate the ball and possibly have more chances although they didn't have more clear cut chances but you saw the commitment and you saw a threat and the kind of unity that's the kind of that's the biggest thing and I don't know how he's done it I honestly don't I, I, I don't know he did it at Kilmarnock I remember going up to Kilmarnock and writing a journeyman column about but then when they were flirting with reaching Europe which was you know he took over when they were in the relegation zone he so he has something he has something that's kind of means he can make a team that's greater than some of its parts basically and there are also tactical elements to the way he sets up in terms of setting up settling upon a back three make, making the most out of having your two best players as left left backs basically yeah. and that and actually still getting something in the in the attacking sense from Kieran Tierney and also bringing people in like Lyndon Dykes and who, who we said before he's not necessarily going to score the goals but he'll help other people score the goals and he he gave Spain's defence an absolute run around like yeah. and bruising bruising night Would and you- I, I echo what Johnny says though mm. watching this I thought this is not Spain like they were swinging crosses into the box all the time and they got a few decent contacts in the first half but it didn't look like a Spain team, and we and we kind of we deserved the deserved the win. Yeah, of course, seventy five percent possession for Spain, but they weren't really going anywhere. Just on Lyndon Dykes, got to say, I was surprised by his performance, having watched him at Queens Park Rangers. You know, I know he's been injured and he had pneumonia, and but to play like he played off the back of being out and and not have had it, having had a great season, I thought he played particularly well on the evening. Could have had a goal as well, and and leading the line, you know, that has been an issue for. for for Scotland I, I would say that I do think the quality in this squad international squads generally do you need a lot to be good at international football I was reflecting on the World Cup the number of teams that were just they had a plan they worked hard they were together they had that spirit and how difficult they made it for the perceived higher quality opposition in international football and I kind of said if you had a, a squad of players who were kind of all in the top six in the championship say that level of quality you could still have a pretty solid international team. Now, if you add to that, I think Scotland have, you know, pretty much half a team of Premier League players now, and then a couple of excellent players, the two that you mentioned, Kieran and Andrew Robertson in particular, leadership as captain. That can lift you, I think, elevate you to, you know, the status that you've got at the moment. I'm not going to say you're going to win the, the Euros or the World Cup or anything like that, but to be a very competitive side at this level is what Scotland are. And I think, you know, as good as Steve Clark is, I think you, you, you do need to sit back and say, you know, McGinn, very good player. You know, Che Adams, OK, a Premier League player. Stuart Armstrong hasn't always been in the squad. Or Scott, Scott McTominay was on the bench in the first game. You know, for me, Callum McGregor is a very good player. I know he plays yeah. in Scotland, but, I, you know, I've always thought he was a, a very talented player. And he looks very comfortable at this His level. composure at the end when, yeah, he, exactly. when he kind of yeah. dipped away from, was it, uh, Gavio came on. Yeah. Yeah. And and sent through uh, it could have been Dykes I can't remember but it's yeah just little moments of composure he yeah. has in midfield yeah. are brilliant we're under pressure 
And McGinn, we've kind of skirted over McGinn. McGinn's McGinn. Yeah. He's like a leader on and off the pitch. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned the word leadership there. There's a lot of them now, and I think Andy Roberts actually said that in his interview afterwards. It's not just the captain. It's Tierney. Hanley's been in the squad a long time. Although, like people always look at it and think, because there's someone who could take his place. He's actually performing really well now for Scotland. McGregor's a leader. He's <clears> you know a captain for for Celtic. Uh, I think McTominay could become one of them guys. Ryan Christie always steps up. Yeah. So there's, play, there's players actually who play better. You mentioned Lyndon Dykes there. They're playing better for the country than they do for their clubs. Yeah, That's yeah. always a good thing. <clears throat> doesn't doesn't part of that come from the fact, you, you mentioned them being leaders, Gregor, that, that they've been together for quite some time yeah. now, these players, this group of players. And the curious thing is, Johnny referenced Kazakhstan four years ago. You know, It wasn't, it wasn't so long ago that, that things weren't so great to put it politely but it feels like there is like a lot of nations it feels like international football is a bit of a a relief a bit of a respite for 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 some of these players and it's it feels like that's similar with Scotland that'd be fair I think it does I mean Michael makes a really good point in his piece today about how Steve Clark's almost turned the fact there's no superstars in the squad into an advantage you know, Michael says the, the advantage of, of, of having a team that, that there's no irreplaceable player means that you can become a collective. So you take someone out of that Scotland squad, that Scotland team, put someone else in and it survives, it's fine. And as you say, Tom, it's getting that, that, that sort of environment where for these players, it's like another club. Turning up there is, is a pleasure. It's being part of something that's bigger than the whole and that nobody's bigger than anyone else. And, and I've said this before in the pod, but Steve Clark reminds me so much of Craig Brown, who was a Scotland manager when I started out and, and was taking us to Euros and to World Cups. And I mean, Steve and I think learned under Craig Brown that they, they, they've, they've talked about each other a lot. Quite Craig was maybe slightly more upbeat character, but similar sort of good old common sense, but with a real tactical shrewdness. And what Craig did... Similar squad, no no real brilliant players, but lots of very good players. He made Scotland into a club. That's He always talked about Club Scotland, as it were. And it's got a very similar feel. And in the same way that, that you could rely on Craig's teams to shoot par or better than par in games, I think you can rely on Steve's teams to do the same. And that is the environment uh, that he's created. If you like football and rugby, union... You're, it's a good time to be a Scotland fan. I've got to say, two very good teams. I'm enjoying watching uh, both of them at this point in time. Rodri isn't, and I, I think he's reflecting, <laughs> by the way, more uh, on the football side than the rugby side because they are very enjoyable to watch. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Rodri, Manchester City midfielder, Spain midfielder, saying after the game, it's the way they play. But for me, it's rubbish. Always wasting time, provoking you. Always they fall. For me, this is not football. Incredible, really. Lack of self-awareness, by the way, for a a Spain midfielder to say that. But also, given poor results that Spain have had of late against the likes of Morocco at the World Cup, Japan as well, now Scotland. Uh, And by the way, they they beat Norway 3-0 in their opening match. Uh, And I've got to say, for a 20-minute period there, this was a an Erling Haaland-less Norway without him because of a a groin injury. They were knocking down the door. There were a couple of fantastic saves from Kepper in that game. And in the end, they scored two goals in three minutes to to basically make it look comfortable. But Spain weren't comfortable. They're not in a great place at the moment. 
I find it very strange that Rodri said that, but you guys, or maybe Tom Roddy, how do we reflect on, on, on whether he's right or not? Are, are, are Scotland S-houses, you know, as much <laughs> as we praise them, is this part of what makes them good? But yeah, partly, but I, I also think it's important not to focus. And this isn't just Rodri. This was Spain as a whole. I mean, David <laughs> David Garcia said the grass at Hamden was too long. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and maybe it was, but I, I just... I mean, it certainly wasn't too long. But the, the, the excuses are... It's a bitterness that comes from playing that, that type of football week in, week out. And in, in international football, you have to... You have to play to your strengths. And I don't think Scotland are S-houses, as you put it, Hugh, but you have to play to your strengths. And, you know, with Wales, with Kiefer Moore up front, they will play to their strengths there. And I think it's it suits Scotland. It works for Scotland. And it wasn't like the percentage of possession was overwhelming, but it wasn't like the, the game overall was mismatched at all. I was actually surprised when I saw the possession stats I thought it can't be that mm-hmm. I didn't feel like Spain were dominating Scotland like they couldn't get out their own half like it, it didn't feel like they were chasing the ball around no. for the whole game I was I was actually surprised by it I'm not saying I didn't think Spain had more possession but it didn't feel like a 75-25 game to be perfect. football's honest. about being effective and Scotland were the more effective side yeah, it was very rare that the kind of final pass was Something that cut through Scotland. It yeah. was often just a cross into the box. And yeah. as I said, there was a few moments. In, there were a few moments in the first half when Jocelyn in particular got on the end of things. But once that was rectified, they didn't really have a major threat. And look, Scotland were clearly sent out with the, <laughs> a little bit of advice to try and you know rail them up a bit, leave yeah. leave leave one on them if the if, if the opportunity arises. Andy Robertson was only too willing to to take that on on board. I think. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's re- it was remarkable. Like it was, it was hilarious. The yeah. the, the, the idea of of uh, a Spain midfielder come saying that, saying that about Scotland players. What you know, what a world we're living in. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. But but it also <laughs> it, it, it 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 takes away from the tactical approach of Steve Clark as well because Spain love to get the ball to the byline and cross it in in the same way that that Man City do. That those typical goals and. The setup of Scotland's defence blocked those opportunities oh. constantly, so it wasn't. It, it reduces the, the the praise that Scotland deserve. Ultimately, you make eight changes, you know, Spain or not, you're going away from home to Scotland. I mean, it's like you hadn't done any research, you know, a side that is so strong at home, and you decide to put essentially a second string team out because you didn't choose it for your opening game which you won 3-0 which we saw the kind of perceived bigger names named in that lineup. why on earth he decided to make those changes to go to Scotland I've got no idea but I'm glad he paid for it to be perfectly honest Luis de, de la Fuente because it was a poor decision only uh, second competitive game in charge he will learn shall we say but yeah very good from Scotland S. Housery isn't it a national tradition just to be clear that they haven't been, you know I'm just not asking not yeah that's true you, know, <laughs> you came through the system so it's not it's not an instruction or anything like that for young players no but I'm, I'd love to see it being that in the future <laughs> <laughs> that's it Gre- Gregor Robertson needs to be involved for Scottish football for this reason okay uh, like Tom Roddy says those are the fine margins and, and you've got to do what you've got to do and that's Maybe part of Scotland's game. Anyway, an, an excellent victory for them, as I say. Beating Spain competitively for the first time in 39 years. I know you mentioned them very briefly there. I just want to say something about Wales. 
They had a pretty good start to qualifying. They got four points from the opening two games. Their second was a win over Latvia. Finished 1-0 thanks to Kiefer Moore's header. Puts them top of their group, Group D, uh, after their one-all draw. That win at the death against Croatia that we mentioned. Nathan Broadhead uh, getting the goal. Before the game at the Cardiff City Stadium, we saw the... Ma- I-, I love him now more in retirement, I think, than I did as a player. Gareth Bale, you can kind of sit back... You know, and you know, have those memories on his fine career. But he was out there on the pitch and gave his thanks to those loyal uh, fans in the red wall. He got a guard of honour as well and said goodbye to the home supporters. It was emotional. Was like, I kind of listened to him speak and thought, shouldn't you be on the coaching staff or like, shouldn't we be inviting Gareth Bale into I'm sure the? He's been asked into the Wales fold <laughs> yeah. already yeah probably to be chief executive to be honest but <laughs> given the El Presidente exactly exactly <laughs> given the injury issues that Wales had they've had some retirements obviously Gareth Bale and some other very experienced players the World Cup for me was a bit of a shambles I think we all saw that as well I think they'll be very happy Rob Page's side with their start to qualification solid start to life after Gareth Bale and to be perfectly honest for me personally this is a team that is maybe freed up by Gareth Bale's absence because obviously having such a talent, such a talent and, and but such an effective talent for virtually all of his time uh, at Wales, even if he wasn't doing it in club football, he was still doing it for his country. You had to gravitate towards him in terms of your style of play. Now we might see some of the younger players come out of the shadow a little bit, the likes of Brennan Johnson. Maybe we'll see a better all-round team performance from Wales moving forward. They had... I think something similar, you know, 75-odd percent, percent possession against Latvia, 15 shots, only scored once, towering Kiefer Moore header, as I say, and maybe that is the area that they now need to work on because, as I say, their forward line, their attacking line, kind of revolved around getting the ball to bail or at least getting an opportunity for him to have a shot on goal, and now it's going to be more about the team, which, which I think is a positive. Mm, yeah, it filters into what we were just talking about with Scotland. There is not... Now there cannot be that reliance on one player looking to one player to be the solution to all their problems. And and it's quite entertaining that the first one of the first games back, the first camp back without Bale, is still about Bale because <laughs> because he is what they're he is what they're missing. But I don't think, you know, during the World Cup, Rob Page used uh, a false nine system sometimes and, and again that was all around Bail a bit more. He didn't. Tot- he didn't utilize Kiefer more in in the way that we maybe expected to him as as often. So we will probably see that a little bit more. But again, I think there's a trend in international football where you've got Steve Clark, Rob Page, Gareth Southgate. They all have this almost gentle hand, and and as Johnny referred to earlier, it's about creating this environment. And I think Wales have it too. Players going there. Rob Page referred to wiping off the cobwebs of players a lot of them aren't playing week in week out in their club football Mm. they go to these international camps and look forward to them now yeah I think it was a positive start for Wales and and things can click a little bit more they didn't have all of their attacking players I mentioned Johnson wasn't didn't start either of the games of course Um, but the likes of Harry Wilson again that all-round quality Aaron Ramsey looked very assured this time around as Wales captain, of course, playing a little bit more for Nice at the moment and looking a better nick too. So I think it was, as I say, a positive start. You know, a draw with Croatia in a game that you really didn't deserve to get anything out of and then a 1-0 win at home. I think they will take it, something to build on. So yeah, that's the international window 
wrapped up for us on the game podcast um, of course all about Scotland's fantastic win England weren't bad either but you expect that there you go anyway uh, we're going to move to club football next on the game podcast Spurs making all the headlines once again stay with us well we mentioned Spurs on the last episode of the game podcast at length of course uh, the departure of Antonio Conte massive what is next for the club is huge all of those questions are up in the air but maybe the question marks have got a little bit larger because uh, a little over what 12 13 hours after Fabio Paratici had put out a video Spurs had put out a video of him basically saying here's what the future's going to be managerial search players etc uh, well the managing director of football is probably going to have to step away from his role because FIFA have extended his ban, which was given in Italy, worldwide. He was given a 13-month ban in January after his former club, Juventus, were found guilty of false accounting. You know, Juventus were given a points deduction in Serie A. He was their sporting director and managing director um, before joining Spurs in June of 2021. Paratici and Juventus have both appealed against the decision. Spurs are asking for further information. That's the last we knew which really they should have got already, to be perfectly honest, once they saw that this ban was probably going to be extended worldwide. But it does leave their plans, and it's an important time, obviously, for the role that Paratici has in terms of helping to choose a new manager after Conte's departure, and obviously not far away from a summer transfer window. In my heart of hearts, I almost think, is it a blessing in disguise? He hasn't pulled up any trees. Conte's left. He was kind of seen as an, an appointment that was there to support Antonio Conte, let's be honest, given their previous working relationship. So for me to have them both out of the club at the same time, clean slate, maybe a new plan for Spurs might not be the worst thing in the world. What do you think, Tom Roddy? I'm not sure about blessing in disguise. I think Conte's, Conte's departure could be seen as a mistake by the club but it was an ambitious appointment it, it wasn't the right fit because Conte's expectations are so high he's a demanding guy and you can kind of sell it as he wasn't up to he wasn't up to it he, he his heart wasn't entirely in it for once but this is this is a totally different story because Paratici was brought in to really take them to the next le- level and actually I think he is he is an extension of Spurs's managerial policy in that they in recent years because they've been hiring guys like Mourinho and Conte who they want to take them to the next level. They're hiring coaches who have managed at clubs who they want to be. And Paratici was a little bit of that as well. Juventus, even in Daniel Levy's statement when he when he first hired him, he, he spoke about the fact he has an outstanding track record in assembling competitive squads and the high high level of success that he had at Juventus. I never really got the impression that Paratici felt that he needed Spurs as much as Spurs needed him, and it hasn't. And, and that's actually a similar with Conte as well which isn't the relationship you want to have with anyone at a football club I don't think that Spurs have totally been in this kind of rinse repeat cycle because they did look at getting Graham Potter but they I think they need a manager they need people who are going to take them on the journey up and coming 
managers, up and coming coaches, and I just think the Paratici situation is 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 chaotic, really. Jonathan Northcroft, what are your thoughts uh, on what's going on at Spurs? Any chance that they can they can turn this spin this into a positive? <laughs> no, and, and we've seen how <laughs> poor their efforts at spin have been over the last forty eight hours. With the, <laughs> even even if Paratici hadn't been then sanctioned by FIFA, the video they put out um, him in his front room mumbling only <laughs> semi coherently about um, the future and the amazing fans to try and dampen the the, the kind of heat around. Conte's departure, even even before the FIFA um, sanction, that was a a poor bit of communication. I felt they are in in a real crisis. I think a rival paper today has mentioned it as being the worst of Levy's reign. It, it certainly feels like the worst for in the last sort of decade of it. I mean, the first decade of the reign was pretty chaotic. But I mean, I was on here a couple of weeks ago, and I must admit, I got it wrong about Spurs. I, I, I remember speaking to Hugh just after the. FA Cup defeat to Sheffield United and saying then, look, you know, it's not as bad as it, it seems. They're still in the Champions League. They're still in a good position in the top four. They'll be all right. And and, and I, I still had a faith that Conte was going to belatedly pull things around. And that was that was wrong. You know, that was that was wrong. He just didn't at the end of the day invest enough of himself, I think, in the project. He seemed to decide quite early that that he wasn't getting exactly what he wanted and therefore it wasn't him to blame and his energies went elsewhere. And I think that's spread throughout the team. I think there's, uh, Tom's right about Paratici, quite similar. It, it, it felt like he's passing through as well with Spurs. It has felt like the most committed people at the club have been the players, that, that Harry Kane's commitment, let's say, hasn't been matched by managers and, and those on, on top. And, and let's be fair, Daniel Levy, I don't think his commitment's in question either. You know, for all this criticism, I do think he's he's put his heart and soul into making Spurs work, but he's got it wrong. And one of the ways in which he's got it wrong is is he's thought that the, the way to the shortcut to success is to invest your money in a manager and maybe you can then skimp on what you're paying in terms of the squad. And he's hired as a consequence. Jose Mourinho and now Conte, two of the most expensive managers in world football, two of the most winning managers in world football, uh, but maybe without investing comparable sums in the squad and thought that maybe putting those two together might give you that shortcut success. But but all that's happened is those two managers I've mentioned have felt that Tottenham haven't fitted their profile, haven't fitted the, the squads that fitted their sort of status as as managers and they've and they've complained about it and I think they've devalued the project, if you want to call it that, they've 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 helped create a discontent around Spurs, which you know makes them makes them ever more less attractive to to players coming in, I think, and 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 seeps into the fan base uh, and has created that that sort of disconnect. And there has to be a big rethink in the summer if Paratici goes, which it looks like he will. That is at least an opportunity to to start again, but. It does feel like again Spurs are looking to build from a, a, a low base, while rivals, you know, not least Arsenal, forge ahead. I'd be pretty depressed if I was a Spurs fan at the moment. No, I, I tend to agree with that, Gregor. What's your view? I think the the Paratici thing is, but they've clearly been blindsided. Absolutely, you know, there were, I think there were fifteen hours passed between 
that video, that grainy video, <laughs> which was pretty kind of amateur, and the announcement that it was a worldwide ban. So they clearly were absolutely like came out of the blue for them. They they shouldn't have been though, because well, it was January that's... January that the Italian FA requested that it became a worldwide ban. So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily an announcement. It was yeah, but people are, confirming. But, but it. then there's there's a conversation about what you know what would their what action could they have taken then? It's still there's still a due process to to be concluded. And the you know the probably the only argument is I actually believe that the investigation began before he was appointed by mm. Spurs mm. four months before he was appointed by Spurs. So this is clearly well it should well it should have been known by Levy and Spurs, and that you know I'm sure it was. And if you know if it wasn't, then clearly due diligence wasn't taken. So from that point on, I don't see what they could have done differently. Because you know, there's some. Pe- I know there are some people and some other journalists and whatnot saying that he should have been sacked. You have got to let the process be, you know, completed. And I, you know, I think now it's clear he's probably going to have to go because he can't do his job. But even then, what you? I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it'd be an interesting question to see if there's anything in, a, in his contract about is this malpractice? Is this is this? Has he done something yeah. that will breach his contract? I don't mm. know. It's probably going to cost but him a lot of money. As he wasn't working for Spurs. Exactly, and yeah. it's not in the same jurisdiction, even probably. Although it has, it probably will be now under fewer. But look, there's, there's a lot of questions there. So yeah. I think you can't necessarily see this. And he's appealing it. So yeah, exactly. Wh- how long that takes? We exactly. don't know. So well, this is a crisis at Spurs, undoubtedly for reasons you know, no manager, uh, Harry Kane's future. You know, either there's other things that the fans are slightly uneasy about. There's still no name for the stadium. There, there's a talk of a big hike in ticket, season ticket prices yeah. in the summer. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure how they can possibly justify that just now. So there's clearly unease, but it's a crisis that needs to be put in context. Like, when you see their supporters' trust come out, I've seen this before, saying, like, we urgently seek answers about the direction of the club and stuff. I think, come on, guys. There are clubs that are in real crisis around the country. You're fourth in the Premier League or whatever you are. And... There have been some really bad decisions in the last few years, but you're still like you've come a hell of a long way. And I know I completely agree with Johnny. I would be pretty, pretty kind of down if I was a Spurs fan just now because Levy has made some. I said it on. I said it on the podcast the other day. He's failed miserably in the last few years since Pochettino left. Every almost every major decision has been a failure. So but, there's a the, the bigger question now is about his future. Yeah, but, that's but, my that's my view. I think he's not going to go, is he? Joe Lewis is a businessman. That's why I'd be most depressed then. Joe Lewis, the owner, is a businessman. Uh, You know, he's an American. I don't think we're going to think that he knows football inside out. He's obviously bought a football club. Daniel Levy has helped to grow his business significantly. The value of that football club must be a a huge change from the amount of money that he paid. And it's about what, what... levels you think Spurs are at obviously we've never seen them go out and spend the money of the, the you know the Chelsea's and the Man City's and the Man United's so given their budget what is the best that they can do and I think the fans one of the reasons that the fans might be disappointed is for me this is the moment to sit down with the fans and say what do you want your football club to be and then go appoint the director of football appoint the manager that suits what we all think all of us in the Spurs family the club should be. I'm not saying that they. I'm not saying that you you ask the fans what who the manager should be, but Tottenham has a historical, I think, sense of a, a team that wants to play football. So that's your starting point. And if the fans are happy and are going to be happy just with that, then that's okay. That's a good starting point. Get the best football team. Get the but best. They're football They're never going to be do. happy with that, Hugh. Come on. <clears throat> No, but I'm I'm saying they want okay, to win things. Okay, they want to win silverware. You're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Spurs fans not winning silverware 
is acceptable if you have a team that goes out there to try and play entertaining football that tries to score goals. They're never going to be happy not winning trophies, I agree with you. But currently they have a team that doesn't win trophies, that plays defensive football and has appointed several managers in a row who play defensive football. So they're sitting there saying, well, look, you clearly don't understand the football club if you think these managers are right for the fans. That's my point. At least if you're appointing managers that want to play football, even if you're not winning trophies, the fans can say, well, we're trying to do it the way that we all want. Hugh, I, th- I, I, I think you've put your finger on something, actually, which is Spurs have... It's, it's this age-old tension between the business side and the football side uh, that we've seen maybe in previous years, that era when Arsenal were kind of happy to be top four because Champions League got the money and they didn't have higher ambitions. The Glazers at United. I think there's a similarity with Spurs because if you ask, has Daniel Levy done a good job? I think there's two answers to that. The, the business answer is he's done an amazing job. Mm. Spurs were worth £20 million when... Him and Joe Lewis bought into the club, and it was Daniel Levy that, that that really led Joe Lewis into it. And they're now worth two and a half billion. Then they've got the best stadium in London, and they've got the best training ground in the country. And they generally have turned a profit on on transfers and and and, and year after year. That's an incredible business feat that he's pulled off. But he hasn't got the football side right. And Gregor's right that in the last, certainly since Pochettino, the football decisions have been pretty much disastrous, you know, failure after failure. But is Joe Lewis ever going to be dis- unhappy with Daniel Levy? Probably not, because he's making him so much money. So what it then comes down to is, is Levy's got a responsibility to try and make the football project better, to make the football project work. And he's always talked about being a Spurs fan, and he's in it for more than just the business side, he's in it for the love. Well, he has to understand then the the, the needs of those supporters, as you say, the, the the desires that they have to play a certain type of football and to get this, this football project to be a bit more successful. That's, I think he's just miscalculated, as I said earlier, in thinking that if he got the right manager in, that would sort of kind of fix everything and be a shortcut. And, and we've seen enough about how football's moved on from, from football clubs that, that it, it take we're in a different era now. It takes you have to get everything right. I think you have to get everything right now from tactics to coaching to it's a holistic thing now in football and, and they haven't got there. They haven't been holistic since Pochettino. Bring, bringing this full circle and, and kind of following on from that, uh, Johnny, actually Paratici, I, I remember hearing a theory right at the very beginning of, of Paratici being appointed and it was almost like Levy had got to the point where he'd been criticised for making so many mistakes on the football side that he was handing that over to Paratici. I mean, not that he, he, you know, this is a bit Logan Roy succession. He wasn't going to to be stepping back completely. I think he was going to be involved, but Paratici was going to be the face of it. He was going to be the guy that when Conte goes, he's doing the the video from um, his home in, in Italy. He's going to be the one who picks the guy who's the interim in charge. It's Stellini this time instead of Ryan Mason. So I think that was part of what Paratici was meant to be. He was meant to be the guy who sorted out the problems, the the football side of things, and let Levy control the commercial side and take credit for that. And and, and his hope was that it would work on the football side with Paratici, and it, it just hasn't. And the problem is right now, you're thinking 
the mistake was appointing Paratici. One thing I would say is uh, in that video from Paratici, there was kind of a few comments about the quality of the youth players at Spurs. So I thought, it's international break. Let me have a quick look. In the under-19s squad this week, they played... Uh, they got a victory, but they, they haven't reached the Euros. England's under twenty nine. Uh, excuse me, England's under nineteens haven't reached the Euros, which is which is pretty poor, to be perfectly honest. But ultimately, um, no Spurs players at all in the under nineteen squad for England. I know it's only one nation; they've got plenty of players from other countries as well. So it's a very small litmus test. Under twenty ones, Oliver Skip, who plays a lot of games for the under twenty ones, Jed Spence on the bench. Uh, Skip was on the bench too. Usually he starts. They had a friendly, so but but. Gary Jacob wrote a piece about this earlier in the season, actually, kind of comparing the two clubs. That's another reason why there's like more of a sense of connection at Arsenal now in terms mm. of a few, well, a growing number of players have come yeah. through the academy and you're now seeing them represented on the pitch. And really, there's not been many in the la- in recent years at all at Spurs. I think Tanganga had a period, yeah. uh, but there are not many that jump to mind. And that's, you know, Spurs, that's something else. Spurs were kind of, there was a little period where they were known for, but it's not really been despite the amazing new training ground you know, investment in that area, it's not really coming to fruition on the pitch. So, Given the catchment area of both where the training ground is and where the football stadium is and the number of young kids, excellent young kids playing football in the capital, I just think it's an incredible shame that a top six club with a bit of investment in their academy and not producing regularly players that we would see are good enough, at least for the Premier League, if not for Spurs. So um, that is clearly one part of the football club that has been failing. And again, you know, if you can work that out, it can be a huge boost. All right, Harry Kane, one of our own, we get it. If you can produce one or two of those a decade, maybe not at his level, but certainly very good top-level players, that can be a huge boost to your football team. Even if you sell them for £100 million and they don't stay at your club, that is a huge boost. That academy has to do better. So um, whether it's under Fabio Paratici or someone else, that's another area at Spurs that needs to improve. I kind of looked at all of this news this week and thought, the the main thing, I was like, this is really going to harm their chances in the summer window. Because I just don't see how a lot of top players are looking at Spurs right now and thinking, that's a place that I want to be. You're looking at a club and you think they've got no sense of direction. Unless they offer me a lot of money, I'm probably going to be wasting my time. I'm definitely not going to win anything. We're probably going to go through loads of managers, and you know I get it. If you're if it's a big step up for you, you're still going to want to play for Tottenham. But it's about trying to bring in players that improve Tottenham, and ultimately the players that are at bigger clubs than Spurs are probably not going to want to move to them at this point in time because it just looks like they don't know what they're doing. So, well, and as you mentioned, Hugh earlier, the Harry Kane uh, elephant in the room, the him potentially going with uh, such a short amount on his contract left, and and then replacing him attracting players to replace him but we, me and Johnny were in uh, were in Naples for the England-Italy game and I've never seen Harry Kane look like that he, he came into the press conference afterwards and he was so overjoyed by becoming England's all-time record scorer which is partly his patriotism but partly this achievement you know he was at he was at Wembley on Sunday holding that the, the shiniest trophy I've ever seen in my life <laughs> but it, it's just the the achievement and I think he will he will want to he will want to kick on from that he will want to be holding more shiny things a couple of games for us to look ahead to this weekend in the Premier League. We're going to start at the bottom. We know there's a huge game at the top because it's Roy Hodgson's return to Crystal Palace. Of course, South London boy, they host Leicester. Two teams in trouble in terms of the relegation fight. 
And really the question is about what Hodgson, Johnny, will bring to this role between here and the end of the season. I don't think I've ever seen a manager with a more fortunate fixture list, even though Palace aren't playing well at the moment, to know that you have to play between here and the end of the season. Every team that is beneath you makes it probably the best running in the Premier League, even though Palace aren't playing well. So, um, listen, for me, I predict a positive little run here for Roy Hodgson. That being said, if it doesn't go well, well, it's critical for Palace. It is. Um, Look, I I broadly agree with you because Palace are very clever uh, when it comes to to making managerial changes. I I personally feel very sorry for Patrick Vieira and and that he had done enough in his his tenure to, to, to warrant more patience. But they... They felt it was it was critical, and and we've sort of seen in the past that they've been pretty shrewd at making changes at the right time to preserve their Premier League status. And as a short term measure, I, I get it. As a short term measure, I, I you know if you ask me, have they got a better chance of surviving with Roy in charge than they did with Vieira? I think the answer is yes, they do in the short term. Where I slightly disagree is I think Vieira would have kept them up anyway, and they could have perhaps done other things like refreshed the coaching squad, the coaching staff, and 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 he could have tweaked himself. But leaving that aside, Roy brings experience. He asked what that's the most obvious thing, um, not just experience in in relegation situations and his vast experience as manager, but experience of the squad, and experience of managing the key players in it and getting the best out of them. It's not a Brilliant squad in terms of it, it lacks a really good striker, but it's a pretty good squad apart from that um, uh, with some really, really talented players. And I think he will have enough. They will have enough. I think Leicester's a big opportunity for them because Leicester are a club that are really drifting and vulnerable at the moment. And it gives Roy the opportunity to grind something out, grind a result. And it's, only one or two results would put Palace safe. That's the other thing. One or two would almost be enough. I, I, I broadly agree, uh, Johnny. I, uh, his presence, I actually think, is is going to be a huge change. I know he's got. I know Roy has the experience of, of doing this often, but I think his presence, because a lot of football is mentality, and I think many members of that squad would have seen the trend the form at Palace, that, that that horrible stat they kept hearing that they hadn't mm. won this calendar year. And they'd have looked at Patrick Vieira and thought, are we okay here? Is this guy going to get us through? And I agree, Johnny, I think I think he would have done. I think it would have been absolutely fine. But now, now I think Hodgson comes in and they know the history there. And, and I think that will change the mentality. It will give them a confidence that looks like the new manager bounce, that the, that horrible cliche that we always refer to. I think it will give them that. It's like a, a fatherly arm around the shoulder, Hodgson coming, or grandfatherly arm around the shoulder <laughs> with with Hodgson coming in. But Palace do have a, a trend of this. You know, the, the Pulis, Warnock, Pardew, Allardyce, Hodgson twice. It's they do tend to go for a a safe pair of of hands. And my only worry would be that before when Hodgson came in, it was a case of trying to tr- trying to stop the goals going in. This time, it's it's the opposite. Under Vieira, they were they were losing by one goal. It was it it was it was fine. It was really fine margins. Now they need to start scoring goals. 
and that's not as easy for him to do. Steve Parrish has got a, like he hasn't got a good record in terms of his appointments. I think Warnock and De Boer are the only two that didn't work. But I find it bizarre. I find it as, like despite all of the kind of just about agreeing with what all, what you've both said there, I still find it absolutely bizarre that they've gone back to him after this whole new kind of blueprint of you know invested in youth changing the kind of style of play they've just taken a massive backward step and I know it's purely kind of designed on Premier League survival and like the desperation to do so but I still find it absolutely bizarre and Hodgson was like was retired he was, yeah. he was retired I was reading that as recently as March 9th he was doing a, a dinner with Roy Hodgson at, at Craven Cottage at like £200 a ticket this, that was his world yeah. and now suddenly he's back in a Premier League dugout at 75 years old it's insane I, I, listen, he's he's listen. He's got experience. I don't want to be not, ageist. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not diminishing his his talents, or he's a. I'm not not being ageist either. I'm saying that from Palace's point of view, it's a massive backward step, and I, I think slightly panicked as well. Yeah. And I think actually, like Steve Parrish's kind of legacy is slightly on the line here. But, you know, because so much improvement. In the, what is it? Ten consecutive years in the Premier League. It's amazing new training ground. Generally speaking, in the last year or so, we've been speaking about palaces like this is a, this is brilliant. Oh, like a, and like a club that manages in this global Premier League to retain something of its glo- of its kind of local roots and its yeah. sort of community spirit and players who reflect the area almost like that was all great things we were praising. And I'm not saying that's been lost, but it's under threat now. And there's also like I think probably some unease behind the scenes in terms of the the, the kind of four partners who own who own shares in the club and. You know, taking this decision essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think two of them were kind of flirting with buying Chelsea not so long ago, so their commitment is slightly under question. So it's a bit of a juncture, I think, for them. And if they go down, it's a disaster. Yeah. And a disaster for Parish as well. None of us want to think it, and, <coughs> and we all like Roy Hodgson. He's had a great career, but obviously, if he takes Crystal Palace down and the Watford and fans. Legacies, the yeah. Watford fans in particular yeah. were saying, Whoa, are you sure he's still committed? Because they didn't see much from Roy Hodgson when he was their manager in his last job. I do think it's a huge one for Crystal Palace, a huge decision. Personally, you look at the two managers and you think they're, they're going to get a similar number of points by the end of the season. I mean, I mean, we've been through it already, but I just don't think Palace were playing that badly. I get it. Three games without a shot on target. Yeah, it looks bad for the headlines, etc., etc. They've had an incredibly difficult run. And ultimately, you know, under Vieira, we were praising them last season for having an attacking style. I get it. They haven't got a striker that scores goals, but given the fixtures that were coming up, they were going to win a few games. There was going to be enough there for Palace to, to stay up, take stock in the summer. And if you truly feel Vieira isn't still isn't the man for you, then you can make the decision then and try and get yourselves in, you know, the manager of the future. And, and Roy Hodgson just isn't that. I just find it to be very peculiar. But um, but I do think they'll stay up. I do. Just, I think there's enough in that squad and, and Hodgson's experienced enough to, to see them do it. I'm not sure they'll beat Leicester at the weekend. I know, Johnny, you're saying they're a team... Um, who are maybe, um, you know, I think have big question marks over them themselves, but I do think there's much more attacking quality at Leicester, and I think it'll probably be the difference this weekend. Yeah, look, Le- Leicester are a funny one, and I, I did a piece last week where I was, among other things, trying to assess who would go down, and I found Leicester the hardest to assess, because on the one hand, they are in, in a terrible sort of, I wouldn't say free fall because that suggests they were at a great height with their performances and they haven't been, but they're really weak at the moment. Really, the club is flat. But on the other hand, Hugh, as you say, they've got James Madison, they've got Harvey Barnes, they've got Kelechi Hinacho, they've got Daka coming off the bench. They do have 
real quality at the top of the pitch. And in the end, I said I didn't think Leicester would go down. And the reason was, I thought, look, it's quite simple. James Madison will have enough good days between now and the end of the season that he'll he'll see them all right. Leicester's issue is 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 deeper, and it's what, what happens at the end of the season with this squad that's that's a lot of them going to move on, and and people like Madison are, are within the last year of their contract. I think they'll get to the end of the season just about okay, simply because of those really talented players. But they're weak. They're they they they're a nice team. They play nice football. Are they an ideal team for battle? I'm not sure, and that's why. Um, this game specifically is a, a good opportunity for, for Palace. Before we talk about the games at the, the, the top of the table and the big one between Manchester City and Liverpool, very quickly, because there are another a couple of key games at the bottom of the table, just wondered how you see them going. Big pressure on, on David Moyes if West Ham don't beat Southampton at home. I think that will be uh, hitting the headlines at the weekend. So... How do we see that one going? Do we think West Ham are going to have enough to beat Southampton who have put in a couple of positive performances, Gregor? God, it's hard to call. These are all so hard to call. It's going to be like this every week until the end of the season. It is. You know, I think they're doing a piece for the weekend that's like, this has got the makings of like a all-time great Premier League season. Yeah. It has. Because mm. there's so much still like up in the air. Everything. Everything, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. With so many clubs. Um, so I can't answer that. To be <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look... Uh, I'd be shocked if West Ham, in front of their own fans, are beaten by Southampton. I would be shocked. I wouldn't. I mean, not, n- nothing would shock me. Southampton have have been buoyed a bit by by Ruben uh, Sellers. Yeah. So, uh, and West Ham, they sometimes look they kind of with a traditional football get get a result, and other times they just don't look like they're going to score. So, um, draw. Okay. On All the right. fence, All absolutely. Right. Okay. Uh, Wolves playing Forest this weekend, Tom Roddy. Is it home or away for Forrest? Forrest are at home, Tom. Well, in that in that case, <laughs> they they actually they're, they're they're such a different side home and away. Forrest, they're they're dreadful on the road. I, I I can't tell you why, but they're dreadful on the road. So they actually have a have a chance. But like Gregor said, I just every time I feel confident in a decision in a prediction, which you know we love on this podcast, you <laughs> every time I feel confident in a prediction it ends up flipping on its head and being totally wrong you know, I'm just loving at the moment that there's you know there is no game of the weekend even if we feel like this weekend is the game of the weekend it's hard to choose what games you're going to watch and what games you want to watch because there is so much as you mentioned Gregor going on at this point in time you know I think that will be a cracking match between Forest and Wolves I'm going to Brighton versus Brentford, which might mm. go under the radar a bit, yeah, but there's yeah. two of the t- mm. clubs that could, you know, get crash Europe, and you know, the two that were seen as like the great disruptors. That's going to be a fascinating game as well. Even Arsenal against Leeds, I think, is a tricky one for Arsenal because yeah. Leeds, you just never know. They throw the kitchen sink at it. If the ball hits the back of the net a couple of times, it could be like that Bournemouth game. We could get a dramatic one, or else Arsenal might steamroll them. Like y- y- you just don't know the way things are going at the moment. Maybe that's what makes the Premier League the greatest league in the world. Right. Go on, Johnny. Come on, though. Come, well, it's, come on. It's Manchester City, Liverpool, though. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's, that's, that, I'm so, are you I'm going really to that, Johnny? I am going to that one. No, I mean, look, I, I really take your point. Actually, every fixture's got something on it, and it's absolutely brilliant this season. But City, Liverpool has just developed this this edge to it that that reminds you of the old United Arsenal 
rivalry, and I'm, I can't wait for that one. So even so. Manchester United against Newcastle this weekend. I mean, there are just some big, big games. But okay, Johnny, fair enough. You've brought us onto it. <laughs> we might as well end the podcast with the small matter of Manchester City against Liverpool Saturday lunchtime. We know exactly how things sit at the moment. Uh, City have a game in hand, do they? But Arsenal have an eight-point lead in the Premier League table at the moment. Is that right? Well, this is a chance, I think, for Liverpool to give their top four hopes a massive boost. We know the rivalry that's been between these two sides. I went to one of their games earlier on in the season, cup match, I think it was. And um, yeah, the fans don't like each other at the moment. Let's put it that way. So there'll be a pretty uh, heated atmosphere as this one kicks off. And um, I think Liverpool will feel like in recent seasons, they've been certainly the biggest bogey team, but almost had the number over Manchester City at times, even if they're not at their absolute best. So this weekend, will they put a dent in Manchester City's title hopes? And how do they do it? Jonathan, how do you see it going? Well, first, Erling Haaland is, is the big imponderable. Is he going to play? He's had a groin injury. Uh, that, that would change a lot of things uh, about this this game. Liverpool are so hard to fathom at the moment, going from that 7-0 to the supine performance at, at Bournemouth. So they're another team. We've been talking about teams that are kind of hard to read. I think Liverpool are are one of them. But it's just got... It, it, it's going to have that sort of crackling... Uh, intensity, that that atmosphere, that that energy around the game, which I actually think does bring the best out of Jurgen Klopp's side. That said, I can't see City not winning it just because they do seem to have slipped into that that City mode where they've got a target and they're pursuing it vehemently and relentlessly. And I I, I just I think it's going to be a brilliant game. City are slightly more open than they've been in previous years, and so are Liverpool and. and I'm probably setting up for a nil-nil, <laughs> but I'm expecting a 3-2 or something like that. Gregor? Yeah, Haaland's a big one. Obviously, even then you think they've got Alvarez who could come in, they could play, go back to something more akin to how they played last season without a recognised striker. Pep could dream up something else because it's only one of these big games where he often does that. Mm-hmm. I agree, I think I think City, like it's so consequential for, for both of them and, and City mainly, and I think if they don't win it, then you it's becoming increasingly hard to see them clawing back enough, enough ground on Arsenal. So I think unless they win this, then it's it's almost impossible to see that. So I think that will kind of that knowledge will get them over the line. I think they know that they have to win this game, and it, as as Johnny says, it could be a really uh, really feisty one. I, I kind of, and I've said this before on the podcast. Um, I kind of hate the the Premier League scheduling because what they do is after the international mm. break they want to come back with a bang. They always want to do that. They want the Premier League to be the biggest talking points in in world and European football. But you know, for a Man City Liverpool game, I want them you know to go in having played, having been together, played a few games, go into it at top form, one hundred percent. Obviously, players will have travelled from South America and all over the world in the last couple of days, and that I think affects the quality of the game that we'll see. And in my mind, I think that will affect Manchester City more because of their style of play and the fact that Liverpool are maybe a more chaotic style of football and maybe thrive at times uh, on the counter-attack away from home as well with the speed that they've got. And maybe, uh, look, I'll call it a more simplistic style of football, if you like, but um, it may help them in this game. Manchester City, you know, if they are full throttle, which I don't think they've been all season, but if they are going into this game, you probably make them bigger favourites at home than you do this weekend off the back of the international window. So I can definitely see Liverpool, and we we say this, you know, you never know what Liverpool's going to show up. Well, ultimately, 
I don't think it has to be the best version of Liverpool to get a point this weekend against City. I think it could be a very tricky game for Pep Guardiola's side. No, I, I, I agree. The, the focus will inevitably be on Man City because of the title race. And it seems ludicrous that with so few games to go... I still sit here and, and think that City... I've been banging that drum all season, Tom. <laughs> I just can't believe that everyone's just like, yeah, City, don't worry, they'll go out, they'll yeah. win seven, eight, nine games in a row. I can see it. We haven't seen it, though. We haven't seen it all season. No, no but it's this stage of the season. That's the, that's the thing I feel. It's this stage of the season where City know... City, City have been there and done it. And we saw what happened with Arsenal last year and and actually it's worth it's worth pointing out Liverpool as well because they will be a little bit of the they will be the subplot to this story because it was all about the Premier League title race but they've got City then they've got Chelsea then they've got Arsenal so they're going to have a they could have a serious say in this title race themselves but with that run of games the context that their season ends and the question marks over the summer are going to be huge. What they need to do in the summer, the reboot that they have to their squad. So I always feel like Liverpool are just teetering on the edge and, and, and it is hugely unpredictable which way they're going to go each game. Prediction? City. City. Oh, I'm surprised by City. that. City, yeah. Yeah, C- City... Well, 5-4 or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd absolutely love it, but I think personally I'm going to go for a two-all draw. We may have, and I'm, I'm going to warn you all now, given the quality of the fixtures this weekend, it could well be the longest episode of the game podcast ever on Monday, depending on the drama, the VAR, the goals and the results. Uh, all of that for us to discuss on Monday when we return. But Gregor Robertson, Tom Roddy, Jonathan Northcroft, thank you very much for being with me. And thank you all for listening. Remember, on a, every Monday, you want to check out the game. So either pick up a paper or, of course, download the Times app. You can also uh, subscribe to the game online. It's the times.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Monday.